here we are. We're going to talk about primarily Monday, March 9th, 1981 at Madison Square Garden, but we'll also share some kind of passing thoughts on March 10th, 1981 at the Garden. We'll dip into it a little bit, but yeah, we've got the majority of stuff from the slightly better show on 3.9. Yes, I agree. So both of these shows were released. They're the first two of six shows included in the In and Out of the Garden box set that the Grateful Dead just released. This is kind of their annual big box set. Last year, it was 71, 72, 73 in St. Louis. This year, 81, 82, 83 at MSG. And I guess we're continuing to work eastward. So next year will be 91, 92, 93 in at Boston, right? <laughs> Boston, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay, so now we're on to something. Here we go. <laughs> well, speaking of shows from the 90s, I think we've got one thing that we need to talk about in the days between. There were days, there were days, and there were days between. By all means, Dave, start us off. Yeah, so they announced on Twitter that Dick's, that excuse me, Dave's Picks Volume 44 will be a show from Eugene, Oregon in June 1990. I think June 23rd, 1990. Yeah, so that's exciting. And we get it, what, mid-November? No, end of October. So just a couple weeks from now. Love it. It's interesting. This is the at least fourth straight year that the fourth and final installment of Dave's Picks has been from the late 80s or early 90s. They've kind of gotten into that rhythm, interestingly enough. I think that's a correct statement. Last year, it was um, two shows from summer of 91. The year before, it was two shows from Hartford in 87. So I guess maybe just this is the third straight year. But in any case, yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm excited to hear that. We, You and I talked about a show from just a couple weeks after that in at RFK. So we're familiar with kind of the sound of summer 90. Spring, Spring 90 like beloved tour. I'm pretty sure every single show from that tour has been released, but summer 90, not so much. So that'll be cool. Yeah, it'll be nice. I think they did a good job exploring the early era, like 77, 74, 68, 69. And now we jump ahead to something new and fun. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't think about the fact that we're going 69 to 90, a a 21 year gap, which is what, which is what we did. Yeah, that is true. I mean, Maryland's Picks Volume 2 was 69, and we went all the way to RFK in 90. So, huh, once again, Dave Lemieux following a trend that Working Men's Pod <laughs> set up a couple months before. Hmm. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. That's funny. Um, so, yeah, we're I'm excited for that. We'll have an episode out about that in sometime in early November. Other things in the days between, we got tickets to at least one Dead & Company show for next summer. We'll be on the resale market like many of you for the others. I know that a lot of you are having the same frustration that we did with just that, the process of buying tickets through Ticketmaster and especially resellers, but it just sucks. You have this whole verified pre- verified fan presale thing, theoretically, to get tickets into the hands of fans who actually want to go to the shows. And then inevitably, within an hour of the tickets going on sale, you have just absolute dirt bags. 
selling these tickets, trying trying to make, in some cases, thousands of dollars of profit off each ticket. It's just terrible. I mean, I don't know how you can avoid it, frankly, but um, it, it really does stink. And this being the final tour, a lot of these shows sold out like instantly. So mm-hmm. I think most did, frankly. So it's tough. But um, like many of you guys will be monitoring tickets on the secondary market for the next couple months and into the spring and maybe even the summer. We'll, we'll figure it all out. But um, there's that. And then one other thing in the days between... Oh, uh, the Grateful Dead meet up at the movies. I got tickets for that. I'm excited. It's um, November 1st. Um, yeah, at the Tivoli Concert Hall in um, Copenhagen from 4-17-72. Yeah, November 1st, which is a Tuesday, and November 5th, which is a Saturday. I'm going to go on uh, Tuesday. And yeah, it should be a good time. I'm excited to see to see what it looks like on the big screen, to be in, in the theater with, with some some fellow heads i'll bring some stickers so if you're going to see it in durham you just may may get some free swag nice all right i I feel like unless you have do you have anything else in the days between or can we get on with the show let's go March 9th and 10th, 1981 at Madison Square Garden. So what's going on in the world? For the dead, I feel like a lot of people probably think that the 70s Grateful Dead ended when Brent joined the the band. You have the God shows for most of the 70s and then Brent comes in in 79. So at this point in 81, he's been with the band for more or less two years. Um, And so... The band is in a in a pretty stable, consistent zone. You know, they they've kind of grown together and they have good chemistry for sure with Brent. Um, and we really see that a couple of times during this show. Uh, the top album in the land is High Infidelity by Ario Speedwagon. The lead single, the lead single off that album, Keep on Loving You, is number two on the Billboard Top 100. And that album was the top album of 1981. It spent 15 weeks at the top of the charts. I think that that is indicative of something we were talking about with Howard too, that just like we were getting into a more, what's the right word? Well, a changing era of music and also a kind of like a brighter burn, but it doesn't hold as long, you know, like these songs that would peak at the charts and be in every household. And then a year later, you'd be like, what was that REO Speedwagon song? You know, like they didn't last. Whereas when we go through these 70s shows and you read these songs, it's like, oh, that's still played on the radio today. Or like, oh, that's still, you know, a household name song or or artist. So kind of just like more, more frill, more flash, but like it doesn't, doesn't stay with you. Yeah, more sizzle, less substance. There, there's like a certain veneer to a lot of the music from the '80s where it like, I just don't know. I, I the word that keeps coming to my mind is it's not accurate, but the word I keep thinking of is phony. Not all music from the '80s is phony. Some of it is really like heartfelt and honest, but there is a lot of just false stuff happening in the '80s. And I think the part of that is the fact that cocaine was huge on the scene. I mean. 
Coke is an upper. Whenever I've talked to people who are on cocaine, they are just like talking a mile a minute. They think that everything they have to say is the most interesting and important thing in the world. And when you're writing songs in that headspace, you're going to think that like you're just the most interesting, deep. I mean, like basically any Guns N' Roses song, pretty much. <laughs> like yeah. there, there's like this, like this level to it where it's just like, all right, you're taking this way more seriously than I am. <laughs> and especially in, with hindsight as the benefit. And to be honest, I mean, there are some Grateful Dead songs that fall into that category too. I'm yeah. not going to say that there aren't. Good point. Good point. Um, but a lot of the mainstream stuff like Ario Speedwagon, there's just this veneer to it that makes it less less interesting to really dive deep on in, you know, 40 years down the road. Um, you know, so I don't know. I'm, I don't mean to just like bemoan the eighties. There's a lot of great songs that came out of the eighties and great artists who are making interesting music. Um, I just, I feel like a lot of the songs that are at the top of the charts are not necessarily that in uh, the top billboard song in this week in 1981 was nine to five by Dolly Parton. So, okay. Well, I, throw I, out everything I just said. About this <laughs> song's not lasting 40 years. Yeah, that's a great song. Uh, it helps that it's like the theme song to a movie. I think that that kind of anchors it a little bit more. Uh, I mean, that's a great song and it's been covered a lot. So, interestingly to me, that's one of only two songs by Dolly that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Um, I would have thought that there were more. The other one is Islands in the Stream in 83, which. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. That song is fantastic. Um, but she had 25 songs that hit number one on the hot country chart. Dolly has a, a long storied career all over the charts in the hot country music, but not so much on the just you know regular Billboard Hot 100. Top movie was a, one that I've never heard of before now, Fort Apache, The Bronx, a Paul Newman movie that seemingly came and went i don't really never never seen it yeah uh it is the um i think that i read that it is the like inspiration to the tv show hill street blues it was the predecessor so that's kind of interesting uh 81 at the movies was actually a pretty good year raiders of the lost ark came out in the summertime that came out in june and would go on to be the top grossing movie of the year. And I mean, obviously just a massive movie in general. Well, right. do we get double birthday? Are you going to do three, nine and three, 10? No, only three, nine. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Not a great day for birthdays either, to be honest with you. Okay. You said that like the last three times and it's a fine day for birthday. <laughs> These are the four that I found. Brian okay. Bosworth. Do you even know who that is? I don't know who that is. There you go. <laughs> the next biggest one. So he, Brian Bosworth was a linebacker, I think at University of Oklahoma or I guess OU, Oklahoma University. He was made most famous by getting absolutely trucked by Bo Jackson on Monday Night Football after he set himself up as like the villain and Bo was the hero. And then Bo just nice. leveled him. <laughs> the next birthday is actor Oscar Isaac. That's a pretty good one. Don't know who that is. I don't think so. All right. So we're off to a great start. <laughs> and catcher Benito Santiago. 
Okay. That's a bad day for birthdays. <laughs> um, other events that happened on that day, the death, unfortunately, uh, October 9th was the day that Notorious B.I.G. was murdered in Los Angeles. The end of the East Coast v. West Coast beef of the 90s. So, um, yeah, no, nothing for October 10th. I just I didn't have time, so we're not we're not getting into it. Um, so instead, let's get into the year. 1981 we have not talked about yet uh, before now the we've only talked about i think one year from the 80s 85 so this is our least explored decade because we've talked about two years from the 60s a bunch from the 70s two from the 90s and now now two from the 80s so 1981 only five full shows have been released from this year uh, despite the fact that they played 86 shows in 1981 uh, that's one down from 1980 and tied with 1987 for the most active year of Grateful Dead concerts in the back half of their career, which began in this year and went through 1995. So they played shows in 20 states plus a 13 show run over two plus weeks in Europe in the fall of 81. Um, but but like I said, only five shows released. These two are the earliest two from 81. Got one from May 6th at the Nassau Coliseum. Howard mentioned that one um, when he was talking with us. He was at the previous night. May 16th at Cornell was released on the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set. And most recently before this release was Dave's Picks Volume 20, which was released in 2016. And that was a show from CU Boulder on December 9th. So um, not a ton of shows released, but in comparison to 82, there have only been four shows released, including the two in this box set. And then 83, only five shows released, including the two in this box set. So the early 80s don't have a ton of representation. And so the people who were there, I mean, these were super formative shows. I know that our our buddy uh, Dave Davis from Grateful Seconds, he loves early 80s Grateful Dead. Howard, obviously, as well. So it would be great to see them start putting out more music from this era. It's certainly worth it. I mean, I, I really liked these shows and the music sounds really good. So why not? Yeah. The band's latest album at this point was Go to Heaven. Excuse me. Um, that came out in April 1980. And then Reckoning and Dead Set, kind of a spiritual connected, spiritually connected albums, came out in April and August of 1981. And that was with content that was recorded in 80 during their, um, you know, the, the acoustic electric shows. And then after that, no no more releases until 87. So we're entering the period of Grateful Dead music where they don't have another album coming out for a long while. It's interesting in this box set, in 82, you start to get some content from that In the Dark album that would come out in 87. Touch of Grey, they played both nights on the 82 box and one of the two nights in 83. But um, that was just a, a fan favorite for the Heads for five years before it came out and took over the world. Um, the tour. So this was the winter 81 tour, 13 nights of shows from, um, from February 24th through Pi Day, March 14th. They were in Chicago, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, College Park, Maryland, Madison Square Garden in New York, Boston, then Utica, New York, and then Hartford. So a good, good run from Chicago eastward around the Northeast, pretty much. 
venue, Madison Square Garden. We don't really need to talk about that. If you want to, if you want to hear more about MSG, go listen to our show about uh, the show that they played at the Garden in '91. But oh, and also just go listen to the good old Grateful Dead cast. They talk a lot about this, and um, you get a lot of good content there. So we can let's talk about the music now. Let's just get into it. But one thing that I want to say to set us up for the music, something that I found interesting when I was listening to these two nights is a benefit of them, of the Grateful Dead shows in 1981, a big benefit in my mind, is that they have so much music to draw upon. Right. And so these two nights of shows, they played at least one song from the following albums. The Grateful Dead, Anthem of the Sun, Oxomoxoa, Working Man's Dead, American Beauty, Skull and Roses, Europe 72, Garcia, Ace, Wake of the Flood, From the Mars Hotel, Blues for Allah, Kingfish, Steal Your Face, Terrapin Station, Shakedown Street, Go to Heaven, Reckoning, and Dead Set. I think that's 19 different Grateful Dead and associate, like Grateful Dead associate um, albums. That's crazy. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. At this time, the Grateful Dead only had 15 albums out. And so for them to play, I mean, then they have, you know, Kingfish, Garcia, Ace, and then Reckoning and Dead Set still to come later on this year. Um, I mean, it's just really remarkable. They pulled from everything. And then obviously covers and, you know, American standards and, and whatnot. So really just a rich, rich, rich songbook that they're that they're pulling from at this point in time yeah, and a, and yet a they cool still have to dive into yeah and yet they still found ways to to surprise and delight the fans thinking specifically about the encore on night two all right should we talk about the music we should you should talk about one of your favorites on the whole cd yeah in the leadoff spot yep uh feels like a stranger feel like a stranger um i mean yeah, this is I, this is my favorite. Feel like a stranger that they've released. I think it's excellent. I love the synth tones, the wah on Jerry's guitar. Brent's vocals are really good. Bob's vocals are even better, and um, I love the like really, frankly, like brolic drum rolls that the the rhythm devils are pumping out throughout this song and throughout this show. They're 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 both really good. Uh, I also think that around the five ish minute mark of this song is uh really really great exemplification of the three-way collaboration between jerry brent and bob all three are playing together so well like as well as the three of them would play together all night and it's five minutes into the concert which is really cool so i love i love this song i thought it was a great way to start a show and a great way to open a 17 disc box set is to put in disc one and this starts playing so yeah i was just delighted by this this version of feel like a stranger yeah, that five minute mark you're talking about, Jerry took a blowtorch of psychedelia and just unleashed it on the crowd. Um, I called this song upbeat psychedelia, and I loved the Tom's work on the drums nearing the end of the song, gave it some oomph on the way out. Um, number nine feels like a stranger on heady version. So top 10 right up there. Great start. 
I think that um, it would be interesting to come back to this like next year on October 9th and see if it's risen in the ranks between now and then. Because I think that as more people listen to this show on Spotify and Apple Music and Prime Music and on CD, now that it exists on the box, I feel like it's only going to rise in the estimation of the people. Because it's so strong. Get some more love. And, yeah. And there aren't that many versions of Feel Like a Stranger that have been released. Um, I, I really think that it's like less than five or six. So yeah, I would be, I'd be curious to hear from feel like a stranger. We go into Althea. I really, I think this is a really good version of Althea. We have not had occasion to talk about this song all that much. And it's one of my favorites. I think this is our first time, you know, other than talking about it with Howard, really diving into Althea, right? Yeah. I feel like we might have talked about it once more, maybe in that 85 show, but I'm not sure. I don't think so. I think this is it, the debut. Wow. Okay, nice. Well, um, I mean, this to me is like as good of a Garcia Hunter collab as any. I love this song. I think it's really excellent. I think that it's just a song that stands the test of time. I'm kind of surprised that it was not like a, a hit in its time feels like it could have been it feels like it would have been a big 80s ballad you know yeah i mean i could see it being very popular in the 80s i i agree with that um and, and the way that it, that they played it on this night is great i think that one thing that makes some alpheas even better than others is jerry's singing he mm-hmm. is like extra emotional in the way that he's singing um, this song and a couple other songs throughout the show. But this one in particular, uh, in the final verse, his singing is like extra emotional and it really makes it like resonate at a, at a deeper level. And then it leads into a really nice final solo throughout like the last two minutes of the song. So yeah, I, I really like this version. Brent's playing has like this pop to it throughout this song. That's kind of interesting. And it it doesn't stay that way throughout the show, but it, it works for this song. And then Jerry's tone is just like perfect for this song. There's just that little bit of extra reverb on his tone, especially throughout the last two minutes. And it just right. it makes the solo shine just a bit brighter, I think. A lot of energy, a lot of emotion in that outro solo. And yeah, that's the that's the peak of this song for me is what Jerry does on the way out. Uh, number 10 on heady version. Um, and for context, three versions above it are all within a month's window of this song at MSG. So spring 81, a sustained peak for Althea heads. Yeah. Great time for Althea. Okay, nice. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can see why Jerry's playing is top notch. His singing is great. And, so yeah, I really like this. It's interesting. I, I feel like 
I might make the argument that the first four songs on this show are the high point of the show. I, I might I back think, off. Go ahead. Well, I think this is a rare show in that set one is leaps and bounds better than set two. And I feel like that's not usually the case. Yeah, it's interesting. They came out with a ton of energy and the they're so crisp. And these first four songs, especially, I think, just really, really shine. The second set I do like a lot, and I think that it's I think that it's still quite good, but I also think maybe part of it is that the shows that we've been talking about lately, and at least for me, having listened to so much 72 dead over the last like month and a half, two months, I'm mm-hmm. so I'm so conditioned to like the formula of 72 dead. And this show does not take that formula. You know, you the other one is like seven minutes long. And right. I'm used to that like fall 72 vibe where you might get a 36 minute other one. And so it it is like just very different. This one, you get a big old estimated and a big old uncle John's band. Right. Which great. And I love listening to them, but it is a different vibe than like in 72 when they're just trading licks on dark star and the other one every other night. And you get these monster second set jams. Um, so yeah, I, I can see that. I just when I look at this set list, feel feel like a stranger, Althea, CC Rider, and Ramble on Rose. Those are the I've gone back to those that part of this show time and time and time again. I've probably listened to that four song run 15 times since this first hit the streaming platforms. And yeah, I mean so I, I really think that this is for me the strongest part of the show, including this version of CC Rider that is great. Howard said that he thinks that and, and I mean I get it, believe me. I've heard some 89, 90 CC riders and little red roosters where I'm like, this fucking Bobby Blue slot just has to go. <laughs> um, you know, third or fourth song of the night being a Bobby Blue song. But they have not gotten sick of it. It's not stale at all at this point no it's tight it's solid at this point yeah it's a great version of cc rider this is like one i I mean i would question if this one is better than the version with branford marsalis from a decade later that one in 91 that we talked about is really really good and i actually i did enjoy that one a ton as well but i think that those two this one and that one are like the two best versions i've ever heard of this song yeah the the first solo break late in the one minute mark until mm-hmm. like 210 just cooks like bobby's giving it the gusto with his vocals and jerry's matching that energy with his playing it's awesome yep flavorful blue solo and then it's a build up to a fierce key solo from brent and transitions right into the bobby slide sweetness um so all three of them just on it for cc rider even though bobby is definitely still figuring out how to play the slide <laughs> because right. this is right around that era where that with that interview with Jerry that I quoted from way back when where David Gans was like, does it embarrass you that he's that he does what he does on the slide <laughs> guitar sometimes? And he was like, it still embarrasses me. But what the hell? <laughs> when else are you going to learn how to do it? <laughs> um, and he, it's what he likes to do. So that's what's important. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think that the jam between the five and seven minute marks is the real high point of this song, though. Uh, there, there is, you know, many years down the road from Vanita, there is a moment of that like missile launch 
thing experience where Bob plays this solo and then just gives way to Jerry and Jerry takes it over at like the 540 mark and just takes it to a different level altogether. It, and that soloing is fantastic. And then Brent takes the foreground pretty briefly around like 615. Um, just like, you know, great evidence of that connection between the two of them with Bob just roaring back in on the vocals afterward. It's just great. I, I, I really like this version. And I don't know, again, the only one I can think of is the Branford one that I may have liked better, but I, I think I did like this one just a, a little bit better. It might be recency bias. Mm. It's the number 10 version on Hetty version, but I think what you said about feel like a stranger applies here. I think this is going to shoot up a little bit as more and more people get the CDs or go to Spotify and check it out. Still three songs, three top 10 versions. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And I'm not sure if this Ramble on Rose is, is this Ramble on Rose's top 10 version? It is not, but that doesn't mean it's not excellent because I mean, kind of like Howard talked about the way that the Grateful Dead can connect with whatever city they're in or whatever state they're in, like knowing that you've got a New York City lyric in your song and busting it out at the perfect time. Like they don't lead off with Ramble on Rose. They don't waste that card to play too early. They bring it out in the fourth song and the crowd just goes absolutely ballistic. And that moment is just so neat. Just like New York City. It is. It's a great moment. And it makes me wonder. Um, so we saw it happen in our own lives this past summer when Dead & Co, we saw them at City Field and they played this song and the crowd loved it. And I'm trying to remember if it was the fourth song because that would be an odd, I, it, that would not be accidental if that were the case. I will say right. that. Um, given that... Uh, blanking on the guy's name who makes their set list but he does an awesome job and did so well with it this summer um so playing in the band uncle john's band then dear mr fantasy and hey jude and then ramble on rose so it's the fifth song but fifth if you count ish yeah yeah if you count fantasy and jude as one kind of the fourth but in, in a similar point in in the show you know we're settled in all having a good time and then this song comes on and it was my beloved sister the great Amy Tex shout out to you. That was when in the show she was like, Oh yeah, I love this. And so there is something about like that connection that just forms. I know I said that in the Howard episode, but Hey, I mean, I love my sister. I'm not going to, I'm not going to not share stories about her when they come no, up. You, you shouldn't apologize <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, the one thing I noticed about this song, it felt like Jerry was really reaching back to put a bunch of energy in the solo, but the guys underneath him didn't, didn't back him up like he wanted like it kind of felt like he was ready to go to a 10 and send it all the way and 
Bob and Brent and the drummers just kind of didn't do that. Um, but other than that, this was a, a quite delightful ramble on Rose. Yeah, there's like a, I like the beginning, this like underpinning from Brent in the very beginning of the song, go to like the 35 second mark, you can hear it. He's doing this like doody doody do do like it sounds like that kind of underneath and it's very like laid back playing. But then the soloing that Jerry plays from like 3.40 to like the five minute mark is just like ecstatic playing. It's so hot. And the what you're talking about, I think that some evidence of that might be the extra stank he puts on the vocal for Goodbye Mama and Papa around the 6.45 mark. He comes roaring in and it's like... like really really puts some extra energy on it so i don't know he was he was giving it he was giving the crowd enough energy to feed off of by himself i guess yeah good point great uh tom pounding drums by bill and mickey toward the end of the song too you were talking about how much they were using the toms earlier and i thought that it was really clear on this song it's great and then on to el paso yeah this is our our first goes into ramble on rose goes into el paso and I don't have a ton of notes on this. It was good. <laughs> it was good. It was quick. And I just, what I noticed, I thought it was an interesting recipe from Bob's first three songs. You got the trippy disco opener. Then you got the 12 bar blues for CC Rider. And then now you go cowboy for El Paso. I just thought that was an interesting blend that he was putting out. And then, uh, an honest to goodness rock and roller for his next one too. Also his songs were getting shorter as we went on. Yes. That's a good point. So Jerry's in the first set are mostly like pretty much all like seven ish minutes long until bird song is a little bit more, you know, full. like 11 or 12 or something. Yeah. yeah. And Bob went with like a nine minute feels like a stranger, then an eight minute CC rider, five minute El Paso. And then like a four minute long, um, beat it on down the line really like blistering guitar work from jerry on el paso which i thought was i thought was really good but it's above even more subdued playing from the rest of the band even compared to ramble on rose especially the drumming is just very kind of laid back and shuffly throughout this song anything else on that one no excited to talk about deep ellen blues next we kind of already hinted at it with howard but the first electric deep Ellum that they played ever. Yes. It sounds great. Electrified. Jerry's tone is a bit different by the time this song begins compared to how it sounded for the previous two songs. And um, I, I think it fits this song. It sounds good, but I, I just don't, this song and beat it on down the line. I, I just don't have that many notes on them. I, I feel like both I enjoyed I enjoyed listening to both and the playing was really good but I do feel that compared to that first really great run of the first four songs I feel like we've started to hit more of a lull in the playing it's not bad it's just doesn't have that same sparkle to me um, although I did think this was a good version yeah Mass has thought so too number four Deep Ellum on Heady version but I agree with everything times they you played that song? just said. I don't. Let's find out. It was not that not that often. 
So I'm curious. 53 times they played Deep Ellum Blues. Wow, starting in 66 and then going to 83 before they retired it forever. Did, have you seen Deep Ellum Blues live? No. I think I have. I think I, I think they played it in Hartford this summer. And um, it still sounds good. Um, I do think that Jerry's vocal is better suited to it than Bob, than aged Bob singing it. But that's true for some songs in general. <laughs> um, so Maybe after most notably Scarlet Begonias, but yes, yes, fair point. Um, so after anything else from Deep Ellum, I don't know if you heard when I said they they played it fifty six times live. So fourth, it's quite good. Quite good. No, nothing else to add. Uh, after Deep Ellum Blues, we get into a beat it on down the line that is like less than four minutes long. I, I don't have anything to report on this one. Um, I will say this is one song where I think that Keith's playing suits it a little bit better than Brent's. And it might just be Keith's tone on a piano in the 70s versus Brent's tone um, in the 80s. But I really like the like runs like the slides down the keys that um, Keith would often do on this song. And I, I really like his playing on beat it on down the line. I was a little hot. I was a little higher on this version than you. I, I enjoyed it. I thought there was a fantastic solo, um, a little doo-wop rhythm with shredder Jerry on top of it. Um, but I mean, it's not the highlight of set one, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I enjoyed it as well. I just I just didn't really have much commentary to add about it, given the length and I think also in particular what comes after it. I just didn't have that many notes. Uh, after it is the, the the biggest, most jammed out song of the first set. We've got a bird song that lasts over 11 minutes. It's the longest song of the set and actually the third longest song of the show. Howard noted when we talked to him that this one the previous show on 3781 included an 18 minute long bird song. Right. So they went back to back. Yeah. And I wonder, I do wonder if that playing influenced this playing um, and it made them maybe more predisposed to take it, take it far out. There are some bird songs from this era that are like eight or nine minutes. And so this one being over 11 mm-hmm. is still, it's not short for its era. And it's good. I mean, I, again, I'm really deep in seventy fall seventy two Grateful Dead, and as you know, if you've listened to any of those shows or Vanita, which is right before the fall of seventy two, obviously, they're playing Birdsong as well as they ever did in in the fall of nineteen seventy two. And so I was kind of worried that I would not be able to like appropriately hear this song. And I would be kind of, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. I'd be comparing it to 72. But when there's a version that's very good, it doesn't matter. And this was a very, very good version. I think that this has a lot of the things that I like in a jammy Grateful Dead song. Between like 3.30 and four minutes in, they're like teetering right on the edge of falling apart in this song. (laughs) I think that they're like right on the cusp. 
But then they regain their form and it sets Jerry off onto this Indian bead string voyage that takes us for like two and a half minutes of the song. It dips down and then it comes back with real gusto around like 5.30. And just really nice accompaniment from everybody throughout that. They're going on the ride with him. Bob's playing is really subtle, but it's really nice. It's just like you can tell that he's been playing this song for a decade and that he's comfortable with it and just knows where to find his spots. You can really hear him on this song. Phil gets into a higher register at times and kind of makes his presence felt more so than he has on some some of the other songs and then goes back down to the lower register and just really just, just kind of driving us right along. And then lots of cymbal crashes from, from the Rhythm Devils, which sounds great on this song. It adds a, a shine, like a shine and a sparkle with that, with that sound. And then at like the 926 mark, Jerry is just breathing fire. So they're all you take all these ingredients, put them into the pot, and what you have is a really great bird song. So I I really, really enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, so did my dog. I was playing this without headphones, and Molly was nearby playing with her ball, just chewing on it. And at like the six minute mark, she dropped the ball, ran over, sat down did a head tilt and just like <laughs> stared at the music coming out of the computer and just like looking very intensely, like at the computer where the music's coming out of. She did that for about 45 to 60 seconds, like almost a full minute ears perked up. And then she just did the thing that dogs do where they just like shake their head and their ears flop around. And she shook herself out of the trance that she was in. Um, <laughs> and just went right back to playing with her ball, but there was definitely like a, connection with her and the music so what you're talking about these psychedelic bird song jams i think they transcend human understanding and they go to and dog owners play the the 3981 bird song around your dog and and see see if they like it too yeah see what happens that's a great that's a great little tidbit i'm gonna i'm gonna play it for my dogs and see how it goes but yeah that's really interesting i mean it is a very compelling playing, so I can I can see why it would attract Molly's attention. Yeah, like very psychedelic, very upbeat, but there was some she had some connection with this bird song that I mean I didn't even connect with. I thought it was I thought it was excellent, but she really, really vibed with it. She was deep. Nice. But speaking of songs I have a connection with, <laughs> the next song, <laughs> we go down to New Minglewood and it's good. <laughs> So, um, yeah, tell me all about it. Well, Phil's bass is impressive in the early going. Bob sounds kind of sweeter on the mic. I know something that you like about Minglewood is when he gets that roar going, and he didn't do, he didn't do that. He kind of kept it more of like a melodic song. Very low driving keys that pulled you right along. And then I think what we're all here to discuss is that 
guitar tone of Jerry's at the three minute mark, like that wah synth kind of almost power tools esque sound on a really a ripping solo. Um, I don't, I did not think that the guitar tone was a distraction. I thought it was a, I thought it aided it a lot. Um, kind of let him poke around and play individual notes faster and better and note the drumming the whole time. I mean, the whole time that those solos are going on, the drumming is just awesome. What about you? What'd you think about it? I can't add anything to what you're what you're telling everyone <laughs> on New Minglewood. I'm just gonna sit back sit back and and say, Yeah, I agree. The guitar tone was something though, I will say that. It was I mean, nothing I'd ever heard in a Grateful Dead show before. I mean, it was almost Queens of the Stone Age desert rock esque. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a good a good comp. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I disliked it. It's just one of those things where it that that tone comes into your ears around like three three minutes, and then thereafter for like the rest of the song, and you're just like, "Whoa, wait, where am I? What's happening right now?" <laughs> um, it definitely makes you like turn your head and focus up and think about what you're listening to, which is an amazing thing. Whenever a musician can do that for whatever reason, so yeah. Yeah, great job. Great job by then. Um, I mean, also just good job going for it. Because why the hell yeah. not? <laughs> right. They didn't like dip their toe in to that sound. They just totally dove in. Dove right great. in. Yeah. I mean, um, if there's ever a time and place to do it too, the the New York heads, some of them who have been fans since they were called dead freaks, not deadheads, are there for you. So go for it. Why not? Yeah, Now's the time. Why not? Good ending well, to set one and to disc one. I was just going to add that the masses loved that they went for it. Number four, Minglewood on Heady version. Top Whoa. Five. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, were you surprised? Did you think that was like about right? How did you, when you read that that was a top five Minglewood, what was your reaction? I was a little surprised. I thought, maybe people would have been scared off by that guitar tone and doing something very strange and very different. Mm -hmm. So I was a little, a little surprised that it was that high, not surprised after hearing like how shredding they're that everyone in the band is playing on it. Um, I think it's, I think it's a well-deserved four spot, but I was a little surprised that it was that high. I thought it would have been at the bottom of the first page when I first listened to it. Well, I mean, they played it 400 and something times, yeah. New Minglewood <laughs> Blues. Um, and so, because I'm pretty sure New Minglewood Blues is on The Grateful Dead. It's on their first album, right? Isn't it the last song? I think it's on Shakedown Street. There's a there's another version it. on that. There, Yeah, oh, they, okay. it's on two different albums. <laughs> got new Minglewood Blues and New New Minglewood Blues. Um so they've been playing it for a long time and then they changed the composition um mm-hmm. but not not dramatically like not drastically so um so yeah i mean hey th- just adding more credence to the notion that um this is a phenomenal phenomenal grateful dead show right definitely one of the best of the year and of the era frankly of like the early brent era if you want to call it that so that's disc one, nine songs, nine a nine song set one as well, and then discs two and three 
are set to, uh, which begins with a China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider into Samson and Delilah. So we talked about this section of the show quite a bit with Howard, actually. Um, he had a lot of thoughts on this. So I don't really have a ton to add compared to what he noted here. I think that these are all really excellent versions of these songs. I like what Howard said that the China cat is long. It's like nine minutes long, which is comparatively yeah. long for this era. And um, it's it's a warranted nine minute version. And then I think that taking I Know You Rider into uh, Samson works really well too. And you end up with this really cool rocking opening to set two. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it was Howard's pick. Um, he loved the China Rider suite. He he opined it was probably the best of the 80s, um, according to the masses. It's number 10 on Heady version and number two of the 1980s. So he's he's not far off. It shows you how how excellent of a version this is. I totally agree with you guys. The China Cat the jammed out China cat is excellent. And I love how they rolled right into Samson and Delilah. They're still playing the, I know you rider on guitar when the drumming of Samson starts. on the organ and i think brent does the backing vocals on this song so well like how he rips into it which which song brent, samson and delilah sorry mm -hmm. yeah like the way that he he backs up the chorus of that song with his backing vocals is it's excellent um it's the number 16 samson and delilah on heady version and i think the comment just said it best brent is a madman <laughs> i agree yeah his vocals are great they're they're like perfect for the song they suit it really really well yeah so i'm sorry to not have a ton of like detailed notes uh to share with you all but i mean go listen to what howard said about these songs he was there in the flesh he had some some great notes on it and i agree with you dave i mean uh, i love the way that all three songs work together it's a really nice like you know what one thing that um when we were talking earlier about like how there's not a, like a long second set jam per se in, in this show, you do still have, what does it amount to like 25 minutes of music between those three songs of just like great rock and music. Yeah. You kind of get two different mini jams, I guess. Like you get the China Rider Samson, and then you've already talked about the estimated Uncle John's, which has to be probably around the same amount of time, right? Another yeah. between 20 and 25 minutes for those two. They're like 26 together. Yeah. And then um, a 10 minute drums after that. Yeah. I mean, but those are separated by the next song, a really moving ship of fools. Yes. 
I agree. It is very moving. I think that um, this song and Stella Blue, which we'll get later on in the show, are just both very tenderly and sweetly played. Uh, Jerry's vocals sound great on both, but just the the like care that everyone is playing these two songs with, it just sounds excellent. And there was a, a quote in the liner notes to this box set that was talking about how Kreutzmann was saying something to Jerry about like, he wanted to play some encore that was like kind of more of a rocker. And Jerry was like, no, like we should play them something kind of quieter, like something that is like more like slow and soft to like help them wind down before they go back out into the world so that they're not like extra ramped up when they leave. And I almost, so hearing that was really interesting because they didn't do that all that often. I mean, <laughs> you get a lot of like rock and Bobby um, encores, but yeah. And including this like, show we'll get, I mean, in US this show. Blues, yeah. Rock and Jerry encore, right. Throughout this entire tour, looking at these 13 shows, the next night, 310 is the only night of the 13 shows where they do end with something quieter. So mm. I don't think that he always got his way in that regard, but it made me rethink how he would deploy these ballads. So Samson and Delilah is like a, a drum pounding rocker for sure. Energy right. is super high. And same with um, China and Ryder. Different energy than Samson, but they are up-tempo, fast-paced songs. And then you get Ship of Fools. It's like, all right, well, let's let's all come back down. Like, let's reset where we're going to be before we get back into some more upbeat music. It's interesting. Um, I don't, I'm sure that there was, it's just kind of where the music was taking them on any given night. And there wasn't that level of thought to it. But the way that it actually works in practice, I do think makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It kind of works as a good reset between these two mini jams. Do you have any other notes on that one? No, no, you hit all the points. So estimated is what comes after this. It's the beginning of disc three estimated profit. It's a 14 minute long estimated profit. And I went through real phases with this song. The first like three minutes, I was like, ah, this is like, just kind of not it. Like, this is not great. Like we are entering like a dip in this concert. The fact that they're not playing this song super, super well. And then by like the four or five minute mark, the playing gets more dynamic and interesting to me. And then I think from that point on, it's a very, very solid version. I think like the back 10 minutes, so way more than half of this song is just great. And I, I think no part better to me than the very end. The transition into Uncle John's band is deeply compelling and interesting and singular. I have not heard like a transition into Uncle John's band that sounds remotely like that ever before.
It's really neat. I just noted that the 320 mark is where they turned the switch on, which is kind of to your point. Right. And the rest of the song from 320 on is truly spectacular, concluding with that excellent wind into Uncle John's yeah, it's band. it's like what you were saying about the drummers can like starting to play Samson while everyone else is still on I Know You Rider. There's a little bit of that where it's like different people pick up Uncle John's at different points. And then it becomes yeah. this like mind meld experience where then it fully takes hold as Uncle John's band and clicks in. It's just really interesting. It's very cool. And and a very cool Uncle John's band too. Bob and Jerry interplay at the four minute mark near the end of the solo. I thought was really excellent. I thought it was those little moments that showed how on fire they were uh, for the show. And then I thought that at the six-ish minute mark, the magic just started. Jerry started going crazy. Bob and Brent were doing some really good work together in the background. And Brent was just really going for it. And I, I appreciated it all. Agreed. I think that that six minute mark that you noted was like my my high point of the song. Although they they keep the energy up and they keep it, you know, sounding great all the way through the end. And it is almost a twelve minute long version of Uncle John's Band, which I'm very here for because I love this song. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really good. I like the tempo that they played the song with on this night, as well. Yeah. Well. Both with estimated and Uncle John's, the tempo is all the way as fast as they can go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, drums in space. It is about almost exactly eighteen minutes of drums in space. Although I do feel like a lot of this space is the other one. Like maybe like two to three agree with full you. minutes of it is is potentially mislabeled. It's all in the eye of the beholder, but a lot of the space is less space and more other one to me. Not a lot to add here. I just, I really liked the drums. I think that's usually an easy song to skip. And uh, I thought that this was a, a quality drums. Yeah. I, I try not to uh, skip drums, especially for like a box set like this, where it's like, well, let's hear what drums sounded like in 81. And then I can compare it to 82 and 83 as well. I thought that, that it was quite good. And, I, yeah, I don't I don't have a ton of notes like, you know, blow by blow breakdown of the drums uh, here, although I do think that it is somewhat interesting that the following night they had like more of a jam pre drums. Like even on this on the track list, it's like Scarlet Fire, Lost Sailor Saint jam drums space. Um, whereas this night right. they kind of get just like more kind of right into it. Um, so yeah, not, I, I don't have a ton of notes on that. Frankly, the rest of the songs in this album, I just don't have very many notes on. I was just really kind of enjoying the end to this show, but I will say, because we said we were going to talk a little bit about 310. I think that we're into the point of the show where 310 really shines over this show i think post go ahead yeah i i was gonna agree with you the one thing i want to comment on with the three nine show that was a standout was i thought that the encore the u.s blues was top tier like high energy 
upbeat grooving but i agree with you the post drum space to like the end of the actual formal set which is the other one into stella blue and then good lovin not that it was weak by any means but it just it it did pale in comparison to the end post space jams of the next night on 310 yeah i think it Part of the reason for me is that, so I love the song Stella Blue and I really like the other one. And I think it's a very forgettable, the other one, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that it's that great. There's just, there's not a ton to it. And then the Stella Blue is good, but I think compared to Ship of Fools, I don't think that it's quite as good when you compare, again, this fucking comparison. It's never good. You you, ne- you know, it's just, why, why are we even doing it? We should shut the whole operation yeah, what are we down. doing? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, I, I enjoy the song Stella Blue more than I like Ship of Fools. Like if you just told me you get to pick one or two, the other one of the two, the other one has to go in general, it would be Stella Blue for me. But I think that the Ship of Fools is just like a bit, it just, it clicked with me a little bit more. Whereas this Stella Blue, I didn't like quite as much. The Good Love and I thought was fine, energetic, but... It's one of those ones where I've heard a billion good lovings. Um, and so it's kind of hard to for me to delineate necessarily between them. But the U.S. Blues, I, I did think, I agree with you. Uh, it was a very strong encore. And actually, they did, of the 13 shows on this run, U.S. Blues was the encore five times. And so I listened to the one after this from two nights later in the Boston Garden And I listened to the U.S. Blues from a few nights earlier at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh. And I did think that this one was just a hair better than those two, Um, mainly because of two things. Number one, the vocals just sound a little bit cleaner to me, which I thought was really good. And number two, I really liked like Phil. I thought sounded really good on this U.S. Blues. Did you pick him up very much? Yeah, I you couldn't miss him. I mean, he was he was hot like from start to finish. Um, I totally agree with you on that point. So, okay. So let, let's talk about uh, 310 real quickly. I know that you really liked the opening two songs. You get two Garcia I, Hunter joints to start the show. I did. The Mississippi half step into Franklin's Tower I thought was really neat, really unexpected. When the set list popped up on the computer, I was like, whoa, okay. Um, enjoyed them both. Just loved the quick upbeat playing um i loved that the crowd was into both of them i didn't think that new york heads would be like all over mississippi half step but once that song came on done the audience version it, they're like oh yeah um <laughs> yeah they were here for it that was to me that just those opening two was really all i kind of wanted to talk about in set one but um just to hit on near the end of set one, they do a Real laser quick, lightning supplication. Before before we talk yeah, about that, because I, I really liked both of those songs, Lazy Lightning and Supplication. I thought they were really good. But Mississippi Half Step into Franklin's Tower. So I agree. This was also an unexpected opener for me. And then I'm looking right now at how often they did that. They opened set one with Mississippi Mississippi Half Step into Franklin's Tower 40 times. Uh, which kind of surprises Whoa. me. Yeah, it is surprising. I knew that Mississippi Would... Half Step obviously is a big yeah. show opener, but right, I wouldn't have thought usually into Franklin's Tower. But beginning in '78, 
um, and all the way through. Mostly they were done with it by 82, but then they brought it back a handful of times in 85, 6, and 7. That's really interesting that this era, that was common for this era. Yeah. I mean, before they brought back, uh, I guess, Help on the Way and Slipknot, um, which I think was in 82 or 83, that had taken a break from the set list. Possibly because Slipknot is seemingly impossible to play. I'm starting to learn how to play guitar, and I cannot even imagine wrapping my head around playing that. Um, um, obviously, Garcia is more than capable of doing it, but uh, it's a dangerous act to do that. Yeah. Live. So anyway, just wanted to uh, make that point because there might be some you know experienced heads who are really into that year, this era of music and they're like oh that's a common opener so anyways then yeah lazy lightning and supplication later on in the first set what do you got on that just good stuff that was the other point i wanted to note in set one was that those that combo um was really something good other than that i didn't have a lot on set one from 310 they like i'm really i wish i would have taken a note on it i listened to the both of these shows kind of a lot when i was working like in the office and on the move driving around throughout the week and so there are definitely some notes that i just missed writing down but they at the, i think it was at the end of um uh sailor saint they like touched back on some supplication like themes on 310 like i feel like they kind of brought that back and i, I felt that way with a couple of moments in the first song too that they were like bringing back bits of other songs a little bit um that was kind of interesting but i think that the half step franklin's opener was quite good and then i think that uh by the end of the first set they'd also regained a lot of steam from lazy lightning onward i actually think all those songs are are pretty good versions lazy lightning into supplication and then brown eyed women into looks like rain into deal i thought that that's that segment two of brown eyed women through deal was also a great energetic way to end set one. And then they don't miss a beat coming back for set two, which begins with Scarlet, Fire, Sailor Saint um, before Drums in Space. So they played Lost Sailor only 145 times. I don't know, only 145 times. Um, <laughs> but it was a very like specific period of time. Like in the early 80s was pretty much when they were playing that. And of those 145 times, I was very surprised to know that fire on the mountain was the second most common song to precede lost sailor not always yeah it was not always scarlet fire into lost sailor like it was on 310 there were five times that they played fire on the mountain stopped then played lost sailor um it's interesting because so you think about like jerry bob jerry bob or Bob Jerry, Bob Jerry is how they kind of traded off tracks a lot, especially in this era. And it's almost like a weird tit for tat thing of like, okay, well you get to play Scarlet and Fire. So now I should get to play Lost Sailor and Saint of Circumstance. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, huh. I don't know if it was exactly like that, but I, there's a lot of like twosies <laughs> throughout this show. You have the the show opens with two Jerry songs back to back, as we said, half step into Franklin's Tower. And then um oh, we should also say there was a, a really nice must have been the roses on set one. Um, but then you have Lazy Lightning and Supplication for Bob later on in the first set, Scarlet and Fire yep. for Jerry, Sailor and Saint for Bob, and then Wheel into China Doll. 
um, for Jerry later in the second set. And then a really not exactly unprecedented, but trucking into sugar mag to end the show for Bob. So, yeah, so a lot of double doubles. Yeah. A lot of pairings, huh. which is just, I think interesting, but yeah, I thought that it was a, a good Scarlet fire. The transition I thought was really, really strong, like really yeah. strong. Um, and then they played even better than that later on really like frenetic soloing from Jerry that just sounded great to me on fire on the mountain and uh sailor and Sam, i thought were also really good same circumstance bob is belting it out he there's like more of an edge to his vocals on that song than any version i can think of off the top of my head and brent's keyboard tone is just like pretty much perfect to me on that song and so you know as great as i think that that beginning segment of set two is on three nine china rider and samson this opening to set two really gives it a run for its money on 310 i think yeah i think you're absolutely right um howard said i i think it's one of his favorite scarlet fires ever and i can totally see why it's all good stuff then to come back to the point that we were making earlier the post space to the end mm-hmm. this truck in into jam which is really should just be called um smokestack lightning jam because they're just playing the song smokestack lightning <laughs> without singing true <laughs> into sugar mag i thought was really really good and i'm excited to hear your thoughts on that sugar mag very energetic and there's something that is gained in my mind by hearing them go from trucking into sugar mag. It's like more than 15 minutes, those two songs combined. And I think Bob just like builds, build the energy. The trucking is only six minutes, but it's really good. On the official release version, it's eight and a half minutes, but I think that's because they don't, delineate the smokestack lightning jam oh gotcha so when you bake that in but in any case yeah i mean there's some vocal flubs i'm pretty sure at the beginning of it if i remember correctly but then he bob like really finds it and i think the playing is really good but i really liked this one too i also really liked the wheel and china doll before that and i'm pretty sure on the dead cast if i remember correctly they said that um, China Doll had been like shelved for a while. And so it was like a real rarity to hear it at this point in time. So they had stopped playing it pretty much in 77. And then in 19, the fall of 1980, they brought it back. So a lot of people who had not seen them in the fall of 80, this was the first time they had heard it in a long time. And this was only one of five times that they, or four times they played it in 81. So even still bit of a rarity for 81 but i yeah i really liked the wheel into china doll i thought that that was really that sounded great and then you got the the bobby one too 
And then the one two song encore of this entire tour coming after that with, I can't get no satisfaction um, into broke down palace. What did you think about that segment? I thought that was really interesting and I was kind of confused at first um, (laughs) on the satisfaction, but they do a really good job with that. Um, And then just a, a good solid broke down. That's, interesting to me that jerry had that view of what like what an encore should air quotes should be like something to wind people down and get the energy back to neutral mm-hmm. um because they weren't really doing that with i can't get no satisfaction they were keeping it upbeat but i enjoyed it i thought that that was really unique and really interesting and i love a double encore if you're going to go back out go back out for more than one in my opinion what about you completely agree i thought that it was a good version this was allegedly the third time that they played it that we have a recording of and they had apparently played it in the 60s when they were getting started but we don't have recordings of the shows that they played it at so they played it a couple times in the fall of 80 and then this time in 81 and so it would have been really unexpected i think for a lot if not like most of the audience that was there that night and yeah, I thought it was a good version. I mean, it makes sense that Bob would be good at singing this song, given that he's like on rocker duty for the dead. And this is a <laughs> rocking song. Um, but yeah, I agree with you about the double encore thing too. And like I said, there of the 13 shows on this um, run, this was the only one that had a softer encore because you, you look at them and it's US Blues, Don't Ease Me In, Casey Jones, and One More Saturday Night were it was one of those songs every night, except for this one where you have satisfaction into broke down. I've seen broke down as an encore twice live. And I think that it is a really great note to send people home to. Yeah. I've, I've seen it once in Philly. It's quite good, but I like with broke down because in Philly, there was also a double encore. I like that song with another song. So was this the first or second or was it, it that night? It was the second. Yeah, it was the second. And the first was... Ripple? No. It was the second and One More Saturday Night was the first. Ah, we should have known. Duh. It was a Philly on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that it sends the people home in a really nice kind of ethereal headspace and also just the lyrics are so beautiful that it's hard to be in a bad mood coming away from someone serenading you and saying, I love you more than words can tell. That's nice stuff. (laughs) So yeah, great way to send the people home um, and to get out of Madison square garden in New York on a high note. I'm sure they stayed in New York until the following day because they had the next day off. But um, yeah, just, good end to a two night run. These are both really strong shows. I think that I I've only listened to half of this box set so far. I've listened to both of these shows, the first night of 82 and then the first disc of the second night of 82. But I've heard some of the content from all of these nights. And I do think that so far, these are my number one and number two discs in the box. All right, Dave, final thoughts. What do you got? All I got is that Howard made his selections for what song he wanted to take off of this 3-9. I'll give you songs from 3-10, but I'll spoil it. I'm going to pick a song from 3-9. 
Um, what song would you want to take off there onto your imaginary playlist? Howard picked the China Rider, um, deservedly so. What are you taking? I have a prediction. Bird song. Oh, I was wrong. Whoa, I was gonna guess you're gonna go with that. Feels like a stranger. I, that would be my runner up. Would be feel like a stranger, but I think that I don't think I have a bird song in my selections so far. You don't, because I think the only other time we talked about that song was um, at the Vanita draft, and it got taken number one before you and I could even even get a chance. That's true. Yeah, because I'm trying to think about even other shows where we would have talked about it. Did they play it at that Brantford show? No, that was the first Brantford Marsalis show that they played that. So, yeah, and they didn't play it during Europe 72 at all. So we wouldn't have had it during any of the shows we talked about from that run. This might be. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I thought that this was a really good version. And I, I, like I said, it has like all of the ingredients that I would want in like a jammy or Grateful Dead song and in a, in a bird song. I thought it was really good. Feel like a stranger. I will be sad not to have that on my playlist. I'll admit it. I'm not 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 going to shy away from it. It's just that the bird song shines just a bit brighter. Feel like a stranger is one of my favorite versions of Feel Like a Stranger, but Bird Song is a song that I like even more than that song, and I think that this is a really good version of that one as well. So, taking it, not looking back. What are you taking? It makes sense. My runner-up is also Feel Like a Stranger, and I was really thinking about picking it, but I I already have one. I picked that for that 1990 show at RFK. Mm. So give me new Minglewood blues. (laughs) Too easy. (laughs) Too easy. Wow. Okay, nice. So we've got a a back-to-back then. We, We Our two songs that we're drafting close out set one. That feels right, doesn't it? Yeah, look at that. That's cool. It would have felt right if we would have bookended it too, if I would have taken Stranger, but that's all right. We get we get back to back. We've got this nice, tidy 18-minute section of music that closes out set one. So and like a 30, 35 minute when you count Howard's pick too. So we're doing okay. That is true. All right. Well, that is all she wrote. We spent a lot of time talking about this show now. Um, I hope that if you are listening, you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. It's a good one. We will be back in a couple weeks to talk about another show. What show it is? Well, your guess is as good as ours, but we'll find a good one to talk about and we'll be excited to join you again in a couple weeks. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Working Man's Pod, on Instagram at Working Man's underscore pod. Send us an email at workingmanspod at gmail.com if you want to reach out. And um, anything else to tell the people, Dave? Nothing for me. On that note, we're going to bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bid you good That's it, that's it. You got it.